You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast, coming to you from Santa Barbara, California, part of Santa Barbara called Montecito. We are an incorporated part of, uh, of Santa Barbara that apparently now we have uh, royalty here. We have Prince Harry and uh, Meghan Markle that just moved in. I'm very excited. I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, yeah, no, that, that's the latest news here. It's kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, they're moving in. So hopefully I can, you know, run into Harry at the gym or something like that. Um, but anyway, hey, listen, this is an episode of Ask Buck today. So there is a, you know how this works. Basically, you guys write in a bunch of questions, you record questions. There is an awful lot of them. Uh, this time around. So I suspect we're going to have multiple shows. I'm guessing probably at least two, maybe even three shows. And that's cool. I enjoy this. I think these are really useful in terms of the educational aspect. It's good sometimes to just back up and, uh, you know, uh, talk about the concepts over and over again. But before we start that, I do want to remind you that there is a website called wealthformula.com. That's where you can go to pick up a lot of free stuff, uh, like free books, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can get that book there. That's sort of a Wealth 1.0 book. Uh, and if you're a starter in this space, uh, you can get a copy of George Newberry's book. The lots of lists to sign up for. The one I would is highly encourage you to sign up for is if you are an accredited investor, to sign up for uh, the Investor Club because that is where the magic happens. If you listen to this show and you like these concepts, you really need to be putting them uh, to play. And uh, by signing up for the Investor Club at wellformula.com, you can start doing that. Now, what is an accredited investor? As a reminder, $200,000 per year for two years in a row. That's what you make. Or $300,000 if you're filing jointly. There's nothing that you need to apply for. It's accredited is. Sounds kind of fancy, but really either you're accredited or you're not. Kind of like either you're pregnant or you're not. If you are, sign up for uh, for the Investor Club at uh, wealthformula.com. So with that being said, when we come back, let's start our first round of, uh, of uh, August Q&A session, Ask Buck. Welcome back to the show, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ask Buck. You know, I will say that one of the things that people ask me all the time is, okay, well, you know, where do I start with this stuff? I had a friend of mine um, visiting from San Francisco, and he's a very, very smart guy. One of the very, very smart guy. Works for Apple, et cetera. But this is not his space, and he uh, kind of, you know, we were talking a lot about some of the concepts we deal with on a regular basis here. And uh, he said, well, what, what do I read? And I said to him, you know, uh, you know, I might start with like the cash flow quadrant or something like that, right? Because that's really sort of gives you some of the basic fundamentals. But I can't think of any book right now off the top of my head that really goes into the types of granular detail on, okay, once you get the big picture, yeah, you read Kiyosaki, et cetera. Now, how can I put some of these things into action. Um, I do believe, uh, quite honestly, that we have the best show uh, when it comes to alternative investing 
uh, strategies and that kind of thing. Anyway, with that being said, let's start. We're going to do all voice questions this week, and I'm doing it a little bit different. Usually I spend a, a, you know, a bunch of time listening and having prepared answers, but I'm going to make this more conversational this time. So first question here, I'm going to roll. Hey, Buck, how's it going? Uh, I'm a big fan of your work and the content you put out. I had a question about a comment you made on your podcast with Dante Andrade. You made a comment that you and your investor investment partners, maybe not including Dante, as it seems he might have some investments in Oklahoma, had made a conscious decision not to invest in the state of Oklahoma. I'm an ER doctor living and working in California, but I am from Oklahoma originally. My spouse and I have been looking into investing in single family homes in Oklahoma, given my connections to the state and the low cost of the homes located there. I know you're very busy and I understand if you don't have time to answer this question, but could you possibly elaborate on why you decided not to invest in Oklahoma? I'm curious because it is a red state with similar politics to the other states you mentioned you invest in, including Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Any response would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Adam, that is actually a great question. And there's a few different reasons that um, I'm not a big fan of, of Oklahoma as an investment market. Um, and part of it is just, you know, the fact that I have a certain kind of buy box and I have a certain kind of desire for, you know, certain kinds of performance. So the issue with Oklahoma, in my view, is that there really is no true significant demographic growth. There's not a huge amount of growth in terms of, um, you know, different industries. Um, there is a lot of, there's a fair amount of oil dependence, but it's not like a Dallas Fort Worth or, you know, Phoenix Scottsdale where, you know, the U-Haul numbers of people moving in are like off the charts. And when you have like huge population growth, um, that is usually because of jobs and, when those people need to move in, that's usually when there's a need for housing. And then ultimately that pushes up prices on rents. And when rents, uh, when rents go up, that increases the prices of our assets, right? Because we're driving up NOI, uh, cap rates become more compressed in those areas, et cetera. Now, what happened over the last couple of years was that these markets that I think that I'm describing that are very in my opinion, very desirable, like the Dallas, Fort Worth, the, the Houston uh, or, uh, you know, Phoenix Scottsdale or even, um, you know, Atlanta, some of the Florida markets. The, the thing is that everybody was, you know, everybody's buying stuff there. So the uh, cap rates were compressing more and more and more. Uh, and that forced a lot of people to go into what we would call tertiary, what I would call tertiary markets, uh, Oklahoma City being one of them. And even in Oklahoma City, you're seeing some level of compression, uh, cap rate compression. But the difference in that market is that there really is no fundamentals to back up that compression. Okay. So that's why I did not want to uh, go anywhere near Oklahoma City, at least from the multifamily standpoint. Now, understand too that my, uh, again, my buy box is really something where I can add value and where we think that we can continue to increase rents and then ultimately divest uh, because of, you know, we've driven up NOI. Tertiary markets are not all bad, right? The thing is that I would say that if you're looking, you know the area 
this is your space, except, you know, and, 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 you know, it's your backyard, you know, it understand that Oklahoma city and other tertiary markets, I think you can sometimes look at them more as coupon cutters, right? So say for example, you're, um, you know, you buy a property for $7,500,000, which is, you know, and I know you can do that in some of these markets, just don't expect that, that, that property, uh, to appreciate very much. Right. I mean, it, I mean, it, it may not appreciate much at all in the next 10, 15 years. Uh, if you're looking at it purely as a yield play that you're just going to hold on to and, you know, collect coupons and say, uh, you know, seven, eight percent per year or whatever, and you're OK with that, then by all means, it's just not part of what we do. And I think from the standpoint of uh, multifamily uh, and commercial real estate, it's uh, in my opinion, is is not a is not a very uh, good business, but it, you know, coupon clippers in your own backyard. Hey, it, it, it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but, um, I certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't go in there, uh, and create a big business plan around Oklahoma city. Hopefully that answers your question. All right, let's see. Next question. Hi Buck. This is Eric from San Diego, longtime listener and part of the investor club. Just want to thank you for all you do uh, with the the podcast and uh, Investor Club, bringing the all the great investment opportunities to the community. Uh, so my question is, with 5G still in the early development stages here in the United States, have you looked into any related investment opportunities such as data centers or cell towers? And if so, are you aware of any syndication opportunities out there? Thanks, Buck. Thank you, Eric. Um, here, let me answer it um, this way. I think that you know, we in an investor club, um, with me sort of leading that that uh, investor club thesis on investing, we start with what we know, and what we what I know is um, you know this space and apartment buildings really well. We're doing really, really, really well in that, as as you know, uh, and. You know, we're doing some self-storage as well. Um, however, I think that over the course of the next decade, we are going to start looking at some things that are more opportunistic. I think for the last few years, um, you know, in our group has, I have specifically been concerned about the fact that we were in the longest expansion of GDP in U.S. history, that some sort of, you know, recession was imminent and therefore uh, decided not to do anything that I considered sort of um, a little bit more of a shiny object or something like that. However, uh, the data center issue that you bring up uh, is, is something that smart money is looking at. Uh, I had lunch with a guy who represents a, a big uh, Chinese investor group, and they're buying up data centers across um, the country right now. So do I know of any syndications or groups and stuff like that doing that at, you know, at our retail level? I do not. Um, however, that doesn't mean that we, uh, we may not get involved in this kind of thing ourselves in the next, you know, couple of years. One thing that I'll say is that what, you know, what our group is going to start focusing on is going to be based on a post-COVID economy. 
Uh, and I think a post-COVID economy means some coming off of a very steep recession and knowing that we have some runway, uh, knowing that there's going to be things that are discounted. Um, and we're not seeing any discounts in multifamily. In fact, we're seeing cap rate compression right now. But we, we may see some discounts in things that we know are going to come back. Um, we may see technologies like towers and stuff that we know, hey, we can buy this now and we think that the economy is going to boom in the next 10 years. So, so yeah, I think it's all on the table. Data centers are definitely um, on my big list of possibilities, uh, that including um, I'm also potentially looking at the, the, um, you know, the hotel market. And I'm not talking about offshore stuff. I'm just talking about basic stuff, you know, like local small hotels, uh, you know, that you would stay in, you know, like the Hilton's and, and things like that, that are just getting crushed right now. And we'll have a show on that pretty soon. Um, but that could be in other space as well. But yeah, uh, to answer your question right now, I don't know enough about it, but it is something that we will look into. But thanks for your question. All right. Next question. Hi, Buck. This is Eric from San Diego. I have an interesting question for you. A little off topic, but I know you're a sports fan. So do you think the NFL could pull off a reasonably successful 2020 season if they adopt some of the NBA strategies? For example, all the NBA players, coaches, refs, and support staff are located in a basically a bubble environment down in Florida right now for the season. And maybe the NFL could adopt this strategy uh, by NFL division or even conference in combination with a shortened schedule. Uh, maybe that could lead to a successful season. It does seem like Major League Baseball is struggling in comparison to the NBA. So just as a, a fellow sports fan and retired medical professional, I was just curious of your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, it's funny, uh, Eric. I think he, these are the kinds of questions I think about a lot, too. As you know, I'm a big sports fan. Um, yeah, I think the challenge, in my opinion, that's going to happen with the NFL is that a lot of these guys – you know, unlike professional basketball and unlike professional baseball, a lot of these guys have really, you know, they're, they're, these guys are overweight. A lot of them have got these massive, you know, body mass indexes. And so that's what creates, I think, additional risk for them. And uh, you're seeing that. I think, you know, some of these guys opting out and they know they're kind of overweight and they're you know, overweight and African-American, uh, those are, you know, a couple of what seems to be right now fairly significant risk factors Get once you get COVID having some bad outcomes. I am hopeful that given their, you know, what they're doing right now and, uh, you know, they're being careful uh, that we can have a season. But honestly, I just, I don't know. I mean, the reality is if, if they, um, you know, I think the problem is I think once you get one guy on a team who's got COVID and they've been practicing with them. I don't know what they're going to do with them. I mean, they're going to have to like quarantine for a couple of weeks. It's going to be a big mess. Let's just hope for the best. And, uh, but yeah, I'm with you. The, the sports is kind of freaking me out a little bit. And although I will say that I am kind of enjoying baseball again. I haven't watched baseball since the old strike uh, back in the nineties. I used to be a Minnesota twins fan uh, when I when I was in high school and in middle school, they won a couple World Series. I used to love watching baseball. Stop watching it altogether, but now um, it's like the only thing that I'm really you know that I mean. There's hockey now. I don't really have a hockey team, but the Dodgers are kind of fun to watch. 
Anyway, uh, yeah, thanks for the question. Uh, let's move on here. So my question is, uh, you know, definitely a first world problem type of question. And, you know, we're really grateful for everything that we have. Um, as a dual physician household, um, I have been a graduating radiation oncology residency next year. And I've been in practice subspecialized for six or seven years, um, trying to improve on uh, the financial side of things since we have a two-year-old now. Um, and trying to balance work and uh, some of these investments. Trying to think about, you know, what is best. Is it best for us to get rep status, one of us to get rep status, which would mean cutting back on work? And, you know, I guess owning real estate, forcing that appreciation, increasing our net worth that way. Or... Um, you know, doing that to some extent, just enough to get rep status and then kind of putting the rest of our uh, efforts into syndications. Because at that point, once I have rep status or one of us has rep status, we could shelter active. The syndication losses would be uh, active losses as far as I'm thinking. And therefore, we could shelter active income. Um I guess that's my biggest thing, trying to figure out at what income number, where does that, you know, like, is it, and I guess that also depends on the type of properties I'm able to find, but um, I haven't really sat down to do the math yet, uh, just because I don't know what opportunities I'll have available to me um, whenever we pick our next place to move uh, once my husband graduates next year. Um kind of a lot of uh, moving parts. Also, I'm thinking, oh, you know, W-2 employees don't have many deductions. Maybe I should look at a 1099 position, work part-time and 50%, and then be able to do some of the, you know, purchasing of property, get rep status, and then also do a combination of that and syndications, both as limited and general partner that was kind of my main question. And then as a secondary question, any thoughts on conservation easement? Has anybody done it, tried it? Does it work? I know there are some pitfalls that I've read about, but you know, all of this is in theory and just trying to look for somebody who's done it in real life. Um, appreciate your time and energy into this question. Thank you so much for answering this question. Thanks for the question. There, there's a few different ones there, and let me just clarify. Uh, when she's talking about rep status (REP), she's talking about the real estate professional status. So, this is an IRS designation that um, basically, if you, um, if your activity material, if you have material activity in real estate of 750 hours or more per year, uh, and that you don't do anything else more than that. Uh, that you uh, uh, you are considered what's called a real estate professional. Now, the value of that is, um, hey, say you're married to, uh, you, say you're a real estate professional and you have a spouse who is a high-paid W-2 professional, because you're filing jointly 
uh, all of these passive losses that you would get as a real estate professional that ordinarily would have to stay in the passive basket and could not be applied against W-2 income could then actually be applied. So so it's actually a, a huge opportunity for people who uh, who fit this category? I mean, for example, if you have you know if you had a hundred thousand dollars of bonus depreciation, one spouse did, and the other spouse was making you know three hundred or four hundred thousand dollars a year, that K one showing the hundred thousand dollars loss could be applied against the W two and uh, decrease AGI. Without that. Uh, real estate professional designation, that loss, that passive loss could not be applied against um, the W-2. So that's that's the that's the whole concept that Jyoti's trying to get at. Um, you will have to do the math on this because I think it depends on a lot of uh, things. But I will tell you that a number of um, people in our group have made uh, a conscious decision where one spouse um, you know, because they were involved in real estate already and they realized that maybe they were making, you know, one spouse was making a lot more than the other. And, you know, the one who was making less was like, well, you know, we actually would come out making more money on the, at least at a, if you think about it, how, how much you take home at least, if we could just have those deductions from the real estate activity rather than taking the, you know, 50, 75 grand, whatever the spouse is making, you might end up with, you know, a $200,000 deduction against a $400,000 income. So, so those kinds of things, I mean, honestly, it's just about sitting down and doing the math. I, I don't know that there's a magic number or magic way to do that other than to, you know, figure out, but generally speaking, um, this will be uh, advantageous if one uh, if one spouse is making significantly more. And again, we're talking about you know a few hundred thousand dollars on one side and maybe fifty thousand or seventy five on the other. Well, you're probably better off, uh, you know, just really focusing on real estate and um, and and uh, trying to get the real estate professional designation, building your net worth with real estate, and ultimately taking those deductions along the way. Um, to your question about, you know, you know, potentially just decreasing hours, um, you know, and being a 1099, I think being a 1099 in general over being a W-2 is going to be advantageous no matter what. I mean, you, you really, if you have an entity um, that is receiving the 1099. You got to make sure you do that so you don't end up with a bunch of self-employment taxes. Do uh, do an S selection. Um, you're going to be in much better shape. You're going to be able to do a lot more stuff than you are as a W-2. Uh, let me just back up here and let you know that I am not a CPA. I'm not a tax professional, so don't take anything I am saying. Uh, as ta- you know, tax advice. I don't want to, you know, g- have you guys come and try to sue me or anything like that. But, but this is what I, uh, this is my understanding. And I think part of what you may need to do is you may need a, a very good um, a CPA because a lot of these, uh, a lot of these things ultimately coming, you know, your decisions on, you know, becoming a real estate professional, whether or not you'll use a, you know, a ten ninety nine. 
versus, uh, you know, being a W-2 versus, you know, the conservation easement um, option that you brought up. All of these are highly reliant on a CPA who's confident and feels comfortable with you doing these types of things. There's nothing illegal about what we're talking about, but not all CPAs are created equally. Um, as to your question about conservation easements, conservation easements are um, a hot topic. The IRS sees them as sort of you know blatant tax mitigation uh, or tax of uh, avoidance. And um, we, we've talked about them before, but in effect, what happens is, you know, you have a, you, you give up, you know, you, you, you buy into property, uh, that property that instead of going into development is given, gives up its rights for building on. Uh, and because of that, you can take the deduction. Typically, that's on the valuation of the property that would be there. That's a mouthful. Go listen to it again. But bottom line is what it has allowed people to do in the past is, you know, if you had an investment of, or you, you know, say a hundred thousand dollars or something, potentially take a deduction, uh, you know, up to four or five times that because the valuation uh, came out that way. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much right now. It's a hot button issue. We will have more clarity on it later. I will say yes. Um, you know, many people in our group have done this. The the devil is in the details. It really you have to use a reputable group. Uh, you have to use a reputable op- operator. There's a, this is the wild wild west, and if you're not careful, you'll do something wrong, and um, you know it, it'll end up costing you a lot of money. That's the bottom line. Conservation easements are real. They're used left and right by the affluent. And uh, if you are you know, part of Investor Club, uh, if you're an accredited investor, you, you know, we talk about this stuff and we'll continue to talk about this uh, in, the next, um, in the next year. Um, if you're not accredited, you're not going to be able to participate in anything like this anyway. So Hopefully that's helpful. I know I was just being a little bit circuitous about uh, about answering that, uh, but you know that's uh, it's a little tricky one, tricky on that one. So, okay, here's another question from Eric. Hi, Buck. This is Eric in San Diego, longtime listener and part of the Investor Club. First off, just like to thank you for all the great content and credible guests you have on your show as well as all the investment opportunities you bring to the Investor Club community. So my question is, it is often described that there are really only four asset classes, paper, business, real estate, and commodities. So which of those would you say is the best for cash flow investing? What might be the best for growth or appreciation investing? And what might be the best for just simply wealth preservation. Thanks, Buck. Okay. Yeah, it's not an easy question, Eric. And you know, a lot of it's just because I'm biased, right? I mean, let's, let's just try to do this methodically. But if you look at what you're talking about, okay, well, let, let's start with cash flow. Okay. And go down the list that you talked about, businesses, commodities, paper, real estate. 
I think that if you own a business, it's probably going to, it's going to probably be the highest, uh, if you have a successful business and from my personal experience, that is your, you know, your opportunity for the highest level of cash flow. but it is highly, often highly volatile and, and risky. Um, other than that, of course, you know, commodities, you know, really not going to get any cash flow there. Paper is going to be dividend stocks or something like that. That's about it. So bing, 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 bing. It looks like I think real estate probably, uh, is, is in my opinion, uh, your best, uh, opportunity for cash flow. Um, that is, you know, reasonably reasonable yield, but yet still pretty safe. That's not to under uh, undervalue businesses because I will tell you if you can be an entrepreneur and you can do some high you know cash flowing businesses, um, definitely a great way to go. But I don't really consider businesses as um, uh, the way I do them. I don't really consider them investments as much as vehicles where I'm generating uh, income to then use for investments. In other words, my businesses actually fund my investments. So that's the way I look at it. Uh, as far as, um, you know, growth um, and appreciation, um, again, if you are somebody who can take a business from scratch um, and, you know, turn it into something of value, I mean, you know, then you can get huge valuations. But again, it is one of those things where, you know, it, it's not easy to do. It's not really, in my opinion, necessarily an investment. I mean, obviously, if you're a limited partner and you can get in early on something, then great. Um, but again, high risk, potentially high reward, because again, you're dealing with valuations and, and business. Uh, you may get lucky and invest in the next Facebook, or the next unicorn, et cetera. But more often than not, you're you're going to... Uh, you're going to invest in things that fail and you lose all your money. But um, so business for growth and appreciation, I would say that commodities, well, gold, um, I don't know that I would call it a growth and appreciation. If you look over the last 20 years uh, or 30 years, I mean, from an inflation standpoint, I don't know that it's really moved at all. Um, you know, paper uh, growth and appreciation, again, stocks and stuff like that. Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, um, growth and appreciation, uh, at least from the from a statistical standpoint, um, you know, having a, a portfolio of stocks has has been worthwhile for that. Um, but again, for me, uh, the growth and appreciation, I mean, if you look at we're, what we're doing and, you know, in, in Investor Club, we're getting growth, we're getting appreciation. It's it's you know, enormous amounts of, of growth and appreciation we're getting uh, with without, you know, uh, frankly, as much volatility. And again, just having, you know, real assets. So again, real estate wins for me there again. Finally, for wealth preservation, I think, um, you know, I don't think businesses necessarily, uh, in my view, are wealth preservation tools. Okay, gold commodities. You talk about gold, sure. I mean, I think statistically, or historically, we should say, if you look at gold, it's probably the the greatest wealth preservation tool uh, in the history of the world, right? Because in the times of 
of of Christ, uh, an ounce of gold would you it would buy you a nice toga, you know, and a pair of sandals. And now an ounce of gold will buy you a pretty nice suit and a pair of shoes. So, so there is a there is that wealth preservation aspect for gold, in particular. You know, I don't know paper. I think it's uh, you know it depends. I mean, yeah, I think if you look historically again in the stock market over time, it is going to it has grown, right? So, but I, I would say if you're talking about you know if you invested in in something now and didn't plan on divesting for a hundred years from now, it might be better to be in gold if your purpose was to preserve wealth. The last part of that though, again, for wealth preservation, and I've made this point several times on this show before, and I, I'll still stand by it, is that the value of gold um, is, uh, is, is a real asset and ultimately a hedge against inflation and, um, you know, it's sort of the anti-dollar. That's my view, and I think that's the view of a lot of people. And um, to me, I don't see a significant difference um, if you're talking about, you know, holding real estate versus holding gold. I don't see a big difference. I don't see why I would hold gold instead of real estate. And in fact, I don't hold gold um, because real estate, again, is a massive hedge against inflation. Um, if you look at what a lot of foreign groups are doing, you know, they just go in in Dallas and they plop down $25, $30 million and buy an apartment building and it's barely cash flowing, but they don't care because they're just looking at it as a big piece of gold. That's what they're looking at it as. So again, for wealth preservation, I would say real estate and, 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 uh, for me personally, real estate, but, but also gold. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. I think different people will give you uh, different takes on that. All right, let's see. Next question. Hi, Buck. This is Kevin calling from San Jose, California, just so near you. Thank you so much for your podcast. I've only recently found it and been listening every day on my commute to work. And it's been a real, like an earthquake for me. A little bit about myself, I'm in my early 30s, I'm a physical therapist, so a more modest income than maybe most of your listeners, but still hoping to learn from high net worth individuals like yourself on how to think about building wealth. So out of school, I was given the script of try to max out my 401k, contribute to a Roth IRA, don't get life insurance, six months emergency fund and savings account invest in low-cost index fund, and buy a house as soon as I can, which where I live is just, uh, uh, anyway, I was wondering what you would suggest I do to transition into a more well-formula mindset. Should I stop contributing to my 401k and Roth IRA and put money into whole life insurance and things like real estate crowdfunding? Do you have a six-month emergency fund, or do you use your life insurance cash balance for emergencies? Any insight on these mainstream personal finance scripts would be greatly appreciated. You are really an inspiration, and I don't wish for much. I just, just that maybe one day I can live a more financially free life. Thanks. Well, hey, thanks for the question. Um Again, I want to just start out by saying I don't want to, I, you know, won't give you financial advice. Um, 
per se. I can just give you some thoughts, but don't think of it as advice because, again, I am not a certified financial planner, and apparently that uh, if you do that, you know, three months or so, you can give advice. But I'm not going to give advice. So, listen, here's um, here's what I'll tell you. I think that it's a change in mindset, right? Um, you live in, you know, you live in San Jose. Houses are very, very expensive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are ways to invest uh, outside of the traditional paradigm, uh, you know, in ways that you don't even have to be accredited. I mean, let's just take uh, our sponsor, HP Servicing, for example. I mean, these guys are pushing out, you know, 10% annualized uh, or, or 10% um, per year. And uh, you get a monthly check. And, uh, you know, is it, is, you know, it, it's something that you can participate in, right? That is an income yielding product. Um, I do think that going back to, you know, my own roots as being a, a resident, um, my own thinking um, was very much of, okay, how do I start building assets? How do I create assets? Um, I think in your situation, it's a little bit hard because, you know, buying real estate, you know, cash flowing real estate in uh, in Silicon Valley is is no joke. But it, the thing is that there's the saying that, you know, live where you want to live, uh, invest where it makes sense. And so you need to start looking at that. There are um, various ways to, you know, begin that process, even if it means, you know, investing in, in turnkey uh, type properties, et cetera. Uh, so I think there's lots of opportunities for somebody who's not, you know, high net worth to get, you know, to, to change their paradigm a little bit. So I don't think you're stuck there. As far as, far as the 401ks and all that and, and the IRAs and stuff, here's my take. And again, this is my opinion, right? So let's talk about, you know, the idea of using a 401k or an IRA. The concept is that you're going to defer, you know, today's taxes um, and pay them later uh, in life, right? So there's a couple of assumptions there that I don't like. Um, one is that when people give you these kinds of great numbers and projections of financial advisors, they they um, they presume that the tax rates are not going to be uh, higher when you retire and you assuming you're in your, you know, thirties or forties or whatever, I would, I would ask you to look at the condition that our country's in right now. I think what, $23 trillion now in debt. Um, you know, it's, it, it is a, uh, you know, huge budget deficits, et cetera. And, um, we're really at a point in history in the U S where we're probably the lowest tax rate we've, we've ever been at. So the question is, do you think, Paying tax now, while taxes are relatively low, um, makes sense. Or do you want to wait until they're much higher? I I would personally think that if you've got to pay them, I would pay them now, uh, and um, and not think of this as a, a tax deferment for the future when you know when taxes are going to be a lot uh, a lot higher in my opinion. So in that regard. If you're choosing between an IRA and a Roth IRA, I would take the Roth. Okay. Now, that being said, 
a Roth IRA doesn't do you any more good than a permanent life insurance policy does. Um, you know, specifically speaking about wealth formula banking or, you know, leveraged IUL like Velocity Plus, you can check both of those webinars out at wealthformulabanking.com. In my opinion, again, this is me and I don't have an IRA. I do not have a 401k, but I do have a lot of permanent life insurance products. And it's not just for my kids. It's for me and growth and retirement. But if you look at what, you know, Wealth Formula Banking does for you or what um, Velocity Plus can do for you, uh, it's like having a Roth on steroids without restrictions. So again, emphasizing that I'm not giving you financial advice personally, rather than contributing to these things, I would be doing, um, I would be looking at the wealth formula banking products. Now, the exception to that is in some situations, if you have an actual match from your employer, well, then you really have to do the math there because then it gets a little bit trickier. Because I think if somebody's going to give you more money um, and they match you dollar for dollar, which, you know, you, you know, I've seen these kinds of things, then I think uh, the, the idea of doing the more uh, traditional, the, the traditional route of, uh, you know, qualifying funds uh, might make more sense. The math might make more sense than that. Anyway, hopefully that answers your question, but good luck to you. I think, you know, um, one thing that Tom Wheelwright says to me uh, and to, says to people in general, Tom said this to me many years ago, and, uh, and, and he says he said it to many people who have changed their situation is, if you want to change your tax, you've got to change your facts. So, you know, learn what the tax law is. Learn uh, about the cash flow quadrant. Read, you know, Kiyosaki's book. And if, you know, if you're compelled to do so, start making some changes in your life that will help you uh, with your financial goals. Because, you know, uh, it doesn't, not everybody needs to quit their day job. Most people shouldn't quit their day job. But a lot of people can significantly improve, uh, you know, their quality of life, their financial situation, just by understanding what, you know, the, the quadrant is and what the tax laws are and how you can, keep more of your money or make more money. Okay, let's see. Hi, Buck. Uh, I see that the 2020 charitable contribution limit was increased to 100% of AGI. I'm wondering if the um, non-cash, for example, conservation easement limit has gone up uh, with that also. Thanks. Terry, good question. Uh, in fact, I think we just talked about this in Wealth Formula Network the uh, yesterday. And um, by the way, if you're interested, Wealth Formula Network uh, is our private group. Our um, you know we, it starts out with a course, and then we have this biweekly Zoom video calls, um, and uh, we also have a Facebook group, etc. It's a tight group. If you like this kind of stuff, you'll definitely love that group. Um, if you want to check it out, go to wealthformularoadmap.com. We'd love to have you there. 
Carrie, as far as your question goes, again, I'm not a tax professional. I am not a CPA and therefore not qualified to give you an answer. However, I will tell you that I asked the question of my CPA myself. And unfortunately, that limitation, uh, increase in limitation for charitable giving does not apply to conservation easements. So again, conservation easements are this magical tool uh, that uh, have been used by the wealthy. Basically, the idea is you, um, you are donating the rights of building on land um, you know, you're, you're, you're giving those up in exchange for a deduction of the valuation for the potential of that uh, land. So, for example, you may have, have a property that you acquired for a million dollars and there's a bunch of mining uh, capability. There's a bunch of ore or, you know, precious stuff underneath the ground. And you say, I'm not going to drill for that stuff. Uh, and I'll never drill that, and there's a value to that, and all of a sudden the value might be that land and everything uh, included in it might actually be $5 million instead of the $1 million that you paid for it. So by giving up those rights, you could potentially take a deduction of uh, you know $5 million instead of the $1 million. Anyway, that's the concept with conservation easement once again. It is something that the IRS hates. There's a lot of, uh, you know, controversy around it. Uh, we'll be talking about it more in Investor Club. There are some other things that might be, you know, potentially a little bit um, less controversial. Um, anyway, that's it, I think, for this week um, of questions because we're, you know, we've got a bunch more, but I think we'll start uh, start over uh, next week. Um and so with that, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I want to thank you for listening to this week's uh, Wealth Formula podcast and the Ask Buck episode. And I know we haven't gotten even close to answering all these questions. So uh, we will do it again next week. Uh, in the meantime, I just do want to remind you that if you like this kind of Q&A, these kinds of uh, you know, all this information, people asking questions, people getting stuff. This is really how you learn, right? Um, I really do encourage you to uh, consider joining Wealth Formula Network. Uh, it's a tight group. Uh, we have these biweekly uh, Zoom video calls. Um, people really enjoy. I think it's for people who really like getting into the personal finance stuff, but they, you know, maybe their neighbors or their family, they're not really into it. So this is kind of their safe haven. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, definitely uh, people who are in it, they, they love it. I would highly encourage you checking it out as well at uh, wealthformularoadmap.com. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.